What it do, fam? Uh, welcome to another episode of The Myths That Make Us. This is the first intro that I am recording live in front of my producer, my brother, Graham, mother f- Dern. Uh, and Graham, I'm going to have you edit in Steph saying his full name when I say it. Today's podcast guess is... Stephanos Spiros Sifandos. God, doesn't that sound so sexy when he says it with his all Greek? Uh, anyways, um... Steph is one of the men that I look up to the most. Uh, he is one of the most embodied and honest men who are quote unquote doing the work and doing it publicly. And this is something that I feel called to do and am doing in my own way. And he's someone that I deeply admire. And this podcast was fire. And when something is particularly fire, me and my friends call it Fifi. And this was absolutely a Fifi podcast. Um, And also what's Fifi is I have finally finished and have launched the Dharma Journal. And I can feel that I'm having a hard time even um, marketing it, quote unquote, for it's such a shitty term and it's not, it's not the way I ever want to do any of this stuff. But um Y'all who listen to this podcast know me enough and know how weird I am where I'm just going to tell you what it is, how I would tell a friend who understands me. And it's, I basically have created seven spells as guided meditations that will help you talk to the part of you that is the same part of you that dreams and is the same part of you that talks to you through psychedelic experiences in such a way that will allow it to show you what your soul is like and then will help you create a temple inside of your psyche that by the end of the week you will be able to visit every day and get a sacred message for how to live that day in accordance with your soul it's the dopest shit i know how to make and if you want to essentially have a ritual that you can do every day to connect and walk into your inner cathedral and meet your higher self in it on a daily practice. Like once you get to the end, it's going to be 11 minutes a day to connect to this. It's how I live my life. And, uh, if you think I'm doing a good job and you want to know how to do it, this is how I fucking do it. So I fucking think you should go try it. That's basically what I'm saying. And so that is out. You can check it out at thedharmajournal.com. And the best way that you can support this podcast, because I'd never want to have to read a goddamn ad where I'm telling you guys to buy stamps or socks or some bullshit, is check out the newsletter, share the newsletter, share this podcast with people you think it would help, and check out the Dharma Journal. I love you so much. We got some dope stuff coming. Big props to Graham. And please enjoy. Brother, first off, uh, thank you for saying yes to coming on the podcast. I would never say no. (laughs) And uh, it's been so incredible to feel into um, your energy coming into my life because I, I vaguely knew of you a couple years ago. And then we did a fit for service summit last year in Sedona. And I was instantly um, like surprised at 
the effect that your nervous system had on mine. Like I just felt like I was in the presence of a powerful male and felt calm and mm -hmm. safe. And that was a dope thing to feel. And then I got to see you and Christine, your partner, host a workshop that I don't know if I will ever forget. Um, and we can maybe get into the details of that if it flows, but mm. the two of yours ability to create a container for like a hundred people that you hadn't met yet, really, and then put us all through this um, public initiation, really, of allowing men and women to basically own their secrets publicly and have them be witnessed. And you were the one guiding what questions or like you were the one offering the questions that would lead to the people stepping forward. That was a signifier that they had been through that. And then I don't know if you guys have done this a lot, but then moving into um, having all the men simply bow and touch the feet of the women. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever forget this. Um, the just explosive weeping that came out of the body of most of the women um, at basically being shown devotion from a man, like touched something in me that is still reverberating. And that was really the first time I saw you like work, you know? And uh, we now live in the same city and it's been so good to get to know you. And I just want to say, thank you for doing what you do. And I hope to get an idea of like, what is the story that brought you to the point where you can come to a group of 80 people, 90 people that you don't even know, and then bring forth what felt like a collective cathartic moment for everyone there. Man, to answer your question, I experienced a lot of pain in my life. And I witnessed my father being very aggressive and very abrasive with himself, with us, and with my mother. And the memory that comes up is that when he, when I was younger, my grandmother, his mother was passing away. And all his brothers and sisters said, hey, you need to come back. We were in Australia. She was in Greece. And we lived in Greece for the first few years of my life. And he dropped everything for his mother. And it confused me as a kid because he would treat my mother in a very disrespectful way. Hmm. And he would treat us in a very, dis myself and my brother, in a very disrespectful way. Yet for, and this is a reflection. I've never said this out loud, by the way. This is interesting. But when it came to his mother, and I love my grandmother, we dropped everything and just went there. Now, that wasn't a bad thing. I didn't think anything of it at the time. What age were you when this happened? We were living at, at home then in the home that my, my mother and father had built. I was in seven or eight. And the interesting thing just to note is I'm the same way, but the best way that I remember ages when I go back into memories is to actually remember the location that yeah. things happened at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was scared, man. I was scared for my father to leave. Um, I wanted my grandmother to be okay. I was scared for us. I was scared. The paradox, right? I was happy that my father was leaving because yeah. I was like, reprieve yeah but um i witnessed a lot of that so i witnessed a lot of this disrespect 
and there was enmeshment with my mother as well. There was Same. a project, emotional projection there as well. And so there was that, that fear, but also that attraction to my mother too, because I felt safer with my mother, although she was abusive as well. And so this reverence of the feminine really didn't come until much later in my life, man, much later. I mean, I left a train wreck of relationships behind in my, my romantic partnerships, you know, treated women as it wasn't that I was objectifying women, but I was really seeking feminine relationship to through sex, and I mis uh, I had mistaken sex for intimacy, mm. and I confused that if I'm having sex with women, because obviously novelty, right? I replaced or I confused novelty with deepened intimacy, mm. and so the hormonal rush that would come with novelty. I thought I'm close. So the closer I would get, so the more sex I could have with different women, the closer I would feel, the more intimate I would feel in my life mm. and intimacy I would feel for me with myself. But that was short-lived. Yeah. And so I just kept repeating that pattern, right? And it wasn't until a very traumatic breakup where a number of years ago a woman found out that I was extremely unfaithful in, in those relationships, in that relationship and in all my relationships really prior to. What age was this? 32, about seven years ago, even more over seven years ago. And that's really where my work began, my, yeah. my deepened work towards myself and seeing myself in different ways and seeing women in different ways. And that's really where I, I saw that I'm disrespecting me, I'm disrespecting the feminine within myself, that yeah. ability to receive one of the characteristics or aspects of the feminine energetic. Right. And that's really where my journey began on, I need to respect myself more, but I have to undo all the shit that had caused me to come to this or contributed to come to this place in my life. Yeah. And that's where the, you know, I wanna say the real shadow work began. I'd played with shadow work before that, but it only goes so far. Right because I didn't have the courage to go further because yeah. I was in avoidance of the pain and the suppressed big T and little T trauma that I had right. experienced. One of the things that uh, seems to be the poetic truth of most people's lives when they feel like they've found their like authentic way of being of service is that their superpower came from like their most fundamental wound. We've always become our values. Yes. Mm. And it feels like, so the question is, what do you feel like was your uh, wounding moment that then allowed you to become the, um, and I would love to hear how you would describe what you are, but what other people would call would be like a relationship coach. But I know that there's probably a deeper mythopoetic self-identity to what that is. Um, my intuition is that it was feeling the full pain shame in that at the end of that relationship that was yeah. like the descent to soul, yeah. so to speak. And so I'm curious if you'd be willing to tell us the story of the invitation into the wound, like the traumatic experience. Yeah. Watching her be in pain brought up a lot of shame and a lot of the repressed trauma. And she found out, and it was interesting because, again, the paradox of life, right, we were having some people over at our house. It was a Sunday afternoon, and every Sunday we would go to a farmer's market, and there was an older couple there that we would buy our fruit and vegetables from. 
And the farmer mar- that farmer's market had finished that day and we had um, – we were driving past to go get some uh, other, you know, supplies, food and so forth for the dinner party that we were hosting. And I said to my partner, just stop here because it was really windy and they were struggling. These older couple, they were in their 70s, they were struggling to bring their tents down. I said, let me, let me help them. And I just left my bag in the car. My phone was there and she had an intuitive hit to look at my phone and she saw an old email. And she put two and two together and I came back and I was all elated. Look at me. Um, I, helped like I, helped these, somebody, yeah. I helped all these people. I feel good about myself in her man. face. Yeah, such a, I'm such a good man. Yet, you know, in the background I was being very deceitful and dishonest. And she approached me and I denied it and we just got into a huge argument. And, and, a, and a fight. She was very, she became very aggressive. I, ne- I never laid a hand on her. Um, but that, that was the moment. And I remember us fighting outside of our house. Um, we were living in my grandparents' house at the time. And that's where I knew was the beginning of the end and um, the beginning of a new life for me. Because I knew this is it. Like I can't keep playing this game. I can't keep being this person that's living in the shadows and not addressing my shadows. One of the things that comes up that feels uh, heavy to connect to in my past is I remember what it felt like, man, um, to feel like I had secrets. I had so many. Like from um, where I didn't want to be seen by anyone close to me because Mm -hmm. I felt that there were things that were unlovable or too shameful and the the moment to moment constant feeling of like there is a part of me that i have to continue to hide uh was so like emotionally draining and in the same way where if you eat like shit your entire life you don't even know what it feels Mm -hmm. like to actually be healthy that i didn't even know how how heavy the um how heavy deception feels mm. until i finally got to a point and it took years um to get to the point where i didn't feel like i was hiding anything out of shame from anyone and then the fucking like spaciousness of my day-to-day experience changed so much that um it's almost intuitively easy now to just, I'm, I'm just telling the truth, like not because I'm virtuous, but because like I'm selfish almost on some level. Like I, I want this spaciousness. Um, but in order to get to that place, I essentially had to shed every relationship because every relationship was based in the deceit. And it took me years and I felt lonely for a while. And so, um, could you kind of tell us the arc of, uh, you know, your first one to two to three years after that relationship, like what were the things that you said yes to? What was the shedding? Um, Can you kind of tell us that story? Well, I said yes to a new life and I said yes to having to be different. I didn't give myself a choice. I said no to the old life. And that meant I had to get very, very real with who I was and I had to let go of, relationships that had been very at some level deeply supportive and safe but they were also perpetuating and supporting an old way of being which was deceit and unfaithfulness and 
<clears throat> deception and lies and shadow and I felt like I was losing my identity and I did. And I, and I remember sitting on, my la- um, sitting on my lounge room floor and I was by myself at this point and just crying and shedding tears and out of control, man, out of control, emotion, shame, anger, frustration, sadness, depression, grief, like all of it was coming through. And I said, I don't know how, I don't know how long I can hold this intensity of emotion. And I said, well, what if I can't hold it? And then I started playing it out. Well, if I can't hold it, then I may lose my mind. I may end up in a mental asylum. Mm. Can I be okay with that? I said, okay, I think I can be, I, I, I have to be okay with that. I'm not giving myself, because if the alternative is to avoid, is to continue to avoid. I said, okay. So I came to peace with that amidst the deep emotion. And then I said, well, what if I'm not strong enough to hold it? And I don't end up in a mental asylum, but instead I kill myself. Mm. I commit suicide because the pain's too overbearing. Can I be okay with that? Yes. So I said yes to that being a real possibility. And there were times where I felt suicidal and yeah. I wanted to. And so I surrendered to that. You know, we think surrender is resignation, but it's not. It's acceptance. It's acceptance of what we were in order to release what we were to create space for a new version of ourselves. And then I said, are there any other possibilities? I said, yeah, what if I get through this and I get through it and I'm able to be that person I know I can be and that I yearn to be, which is a teacher you know, we spoke about the elder archetype earlier, which would at some point in my life become an elder and become a beacon of truth and light and love and inspiration, not only for my own path, primarily for me, but for others. Could that be a real possibility? Yes. So I've got these three core possibilities potentially playing out. And could I surrender to all of those? And amidst the pain, be in the pain, the intensity of it, the, 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 not even rock bottom, but the, 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 the what appeared to be this <clears throat> endless <laughs> circular descent into beyond the rock bottom, yeah. into Hades, into hell, whatever that may be. The underworld. The underworld. And just accept that. And it was yes. So I said the commitment was I have no choice and the commitment is I'm just going to keep going deeper and deeper and yeah. deeper until the old shifts because the old was unworthy of my presence anymore, but I knew I had to be in it long enough to transcend it. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a couple of things that come up and I want to plant a couple seeds, but then I want to ask the direct question. One of the things I'm curious about is, did you have a metaphysical or spiritual uh, map at that time and did that help you in this moment but that's not the direct question I want to ask um, what's interesting and one of the things that I'm constantly feeling into is it feels like our life is almost like or our existence is almost like um, a song and the ego is the one that gets to control the body the thing playing the song is our higher self or whatever word you want to use for that and the actual vibration of the song, like the uh, felt 
connection to the ego. Uh, I call it the daemon, but people could call it the soul or whatever. Um, it's the thing that brings the messages to the body about whether or not you're in alignment with your song. And I think when you're in alignment, it feels like what we would call Dharma or something like that. And that it's almost like we go through these layers of recognizing where we're rigid in our movement. And those are all our old coping patterns, our old identities. And there's something like the motif of crying on the floor in complete and utter surrender, not because you're graceful, but because the vibration of the daemon or the soul has gotten so loud that there's almost no option to continue moving to the song the way that you have been in the past. And that because we don't have, and this is something we can get into, true elders and true adults in our culture, it's not, we, we don't have guides through this. And so the way people tend to get through it in our culture is, can they survive the obliteration moments? And your story and the fact that what it was was a commitment that actually led to the beginning of the change perfectly mirrors an experience that I had where when I was 27, um, I accidentally ate 180 milligrams of THC. And that's equivalent in my understanding of like smoking 18 joints. Like that's the Whoa. way. And um, I'm incredibly sensitive to marijuana. And I had the hardest experience of my life. Uh, just to give a brief overview. Um, I genuinely believed that the felt sense of truth that was being conveyed to me when it was beginning was that um, the truth of my existence was that I'd been in a car accident and that I'm in a hospital and I'm paralyzed. And I'm so unable to accept my reality that I've created this dream. And the dream is the life of Eric. Uh, that was the beginning of this trip. Wow. I eventually got to the point where I realized, oh, I am deep, deep, deep in marijuana. Um, let me just get to the bathroom and like go out the rest of the experience in the bathroom. And it was actually two days before Christmas. So I was visiting my family and I could feel that I went to the bathroom with the energy of shame and wanting to hide. Like I didn't want to worry my parents because I was so gone that apparently they had tried to come talk to me. I, I was in the living room because I thought I was taking a really small dose and I was going to like watch a movie or something. I was in the living room for an hour before I realized it and my eyes were closed and I was in like a meditative pose and my parents tried to talk to me and I didn't answer. And they know that I'm weird enough where they're like, oh, he's meditating. <laughs> and it was like at 8 p.m. in the evening in the main room. Um, and once I realized that I was gone, I, I went to the bathroom in kind of shame and guilt. And... For the next two hours, it felt like I had to play out or I had to feel fully um, being both the victim and the perpetrator of every fundamental trauma that I could feel as someone that can intuit were the traumas of all the people in my family. So um, can you accept that you were raped? Can you accept that you were the one who raped? Uh, can you accept that you're gay? Can you accept that you're the parent who hates their child because they're gay? Uh, can you accept that you were physically abused? Uh, can you accept that you were the parent that physically abused a child? Um, and most of those things aren't mine, but I had to go through it as if it were mine and accept it fully. 
And I remember waking up the next day and just having this, like, I commit to doing anything that my intuition calls me to do, even if I'm afraid to do it. And that felt like my commitment to this new path. Mm. And it radically changed my life because it, it was a fundamentally different way of orienting to the Massively. world. Or like my coping thing was use the mind to explain away doing scary things. And it felt like yours was um, use my coping strategies to not feel the things I don't want to feel. Correct. And, um, and so uh, it felt like you self-initiated, which is the sad state of affairs that most people have to go through in our culture because we lack true elders and true adults. Yes, sir. Um, what happened after that commitment for you? More pain, more dissent, more shadow, um, coupled with more reaching out knowing that I couldn't do it on my own, but knowing that I had to be on my own for a lot of that journey. But I sought the elders. I sought the guidance. I counselled psychologists, trauma therapists, shamans, spiritual healers, guides, energy workers, all of it. I had to make some big decisions around who I wanted in my life and who I could have in my life. And, you know, I mentioned something about those friends earlier. Those friends and 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 – some of them I still have, 20-plus-year relationships. When I was younger, I never wanted to be home. And so I found friends in my neighborhood that felt like saviors. Same. And it got me out of a very abusive household. It got me out of volatility and a tumultuous, turbulent way of living. It got me out of that activated sympathetic nervous system response of fear and and, tr and and just tremor in my being, terror, fucking terror, man. And so I looked to those friends unconsciously more than consciously as saviors and to let them go because I knew they weren't going to facilitate or I, they weren't going to be able to facilitate a new version of me because change is very scary for other people. The change in ourselves is very scary for other people. 100%. It was more death. It was more, well, who the fuck am I? I'm losing my money. I'm losing, I'm nearly going bankrupt. I'm losing my partner. I'm losing my sense of self. Immense sh sexual shame, all of it. Body shame, everything was coming up. I can't trust my parents because I'm also directly working with the, the, the terror and the trauma associated with our dynamic. Who do I have? I've got strangers that I projecting as somewhat of an elder archetype or a guide that can help me, yet I don't know them, I have to surrender to the trust in that as well. Mm -hmm. And I had to just keep making these very, what appeared to be very big leaps and almost flood my system and my organism, my whole sense of being with big, big steps or what felt like to be massive, massive steps. Uh, but I had to chunk that down and just keep making those steps because I had committed. And for the first time in my life, my word was everything. Mm. And even that was very new and yeah. just strange. One of the things that comes up there is it seems to be one of the fundamental requirements for beginning to hone your inner sacred guidance system is keeping your word to yourself. And that 
the interesting thing that's come up for me just like kind of organically being a coach and answering a lot of questions is what I have found resonates with me the most and seems to be resonating with others is that the way to most effectively cultivate self-love is through self-respect, mm. which is primarily cultivated through keeping your word to yourself. And for a lot of people, uh, that begins with being honest with what type of commitments you can even begin to make where you are at. Like I know a lot of people who desperately want to be something other than what they are Yes, in a weird way that they're inner protectors that don't want to change because change feels like death to the protectors. Big time. Is let's make wild commitments to our healing that I know you won't be able to keep. And then once you fall on them after like a week, the shame will bring you back to us, the protectors, and we will get to stay where we're at. And the protector stays alive. Exactly. And if the protector stays alive, at some level you feel safe, but the protector can't stay alive without the drama, the, cha the change, the challenge, the difficulty, right. the pain, the shame. And so you're just perpetuating that protector. Right. You know, we spoke about internal fam family systems. And I can't remember who the gentleman was that said this, but he said, um, you have to retire the protector. Right. At some point, because yeah. if you don't retire that protector with compassion and love, you don't get a healthier protector to come in or new versions of yourself to come in or fundamental shifts that can happen in your psyche, in your emotional being, in your spirituality, right. in your entire organism to come in and be, live, very real lived experience, that different version of yourself. We have to retire those protectors. Absolutely. But that's fucking hard to do because they're so attached. Like the story that you shared, about, I had to be the person that was abused, but I had to be the abuser. We have to be all of it. And that, that to me is that unity consciousness. Yeah. And it's just another access point. You know, we, we give a, a bad rap to, at some level, the shadow, right? In, generalizing in, a, in, a, in our collective experience. And so we suppress it. But that is a pathway to greater revelation of self. Absolutely. It, it, it's not the only pathway. I think where the collective consciousness of humanity and society is, is that we tend to learn better with extreme pain. I think we are transcending that. And I say this often, I think we are transcending it. I feel we are transcending that, but not before we move through it. Right. Otherwise, we're just going to keep avoiding it and we're going to be stuck in that repetitive loop and cycle of, we have to move through our shadow, but it's too intense, so we're going to avoid it. And we're just stuck and stuck yeah, and stuck. One of the things that comes up for me when I hear that is like in a healthy culture where people would move through the um, developmental stages uh, smoothly, or at least when they're supposed to, um, that it's around late teens, early 20s, where you begin to integrate the shadow to, to become an authentic being that then can find their place in the social community that they want to find a place in. Yeah. Um, but that most people are 60 years old and still haven't achieved that. And yep. I think that that's a reflection, again, of not having a healthy culture and true adults and true elders to help guide but one of the things that I'm feeling into in the collective is the emergence of social media feels like the um, collective version of the individual psyche developing enough cognitive architecture to begin to realize that there's a social community 
that I have to find my place in. And the first strategy we run is not my true self. What do other people want from me and how can I fit in? And then I go do that first. But by doing that, that's how you really start to feed and amplify the shadow. And then there's the next stage where you have to begin to integrate your shadow that you projected onto the so onto the social community. And that can bring you into a higher level of development. And it feels like as a collective, we're at that point now because of social media where the collective psyche is becoming aware of its shadow. And it feels like that's actually the, the developmental stage that Western culture seems to be most charged in right now. And you can just look at like, Look at how we have discourse as, as, as a collective. So hyper-defensive. If anyone outside of you is perceived by you as either evil or godly, that's your shadow. A beautiful thing that I've heard just recently that really resonates with me is there's the classic shadow, what most of us understand as the shadow, <laughs> and those are the aspects of us that we find disgusting or that can't be me. But then there's also the golden shadow. And the golden shadow are the higher um, values that you project onto other people that you idolize. We don't own our own traits. Right. And that there are aspects of you that are so big and beautiful and powerful that if you were to truly integrate them, you would have to fundamentally change the way that you show up in the world and your responsibility would be fundamentally more meaningful. And if we're not ready to hold that, we also put that out onto other people. So one of the things for listeners to feel into is you can probably easily tell who you hate and what part of the collective you hate. Like if you're on the left and you hate the right or you're on the right and you hate the left, that's, that's your classic shadow. But are there also people that you idolize? Are there people that you hero worship? Are there people that you see as gurus, as somehow fundamentally higher than you? That's you too. Mm. Big time. I want to speak to something that you said around the, the the transition at around 18, 19, 20. And I, I want to offer you something. And I want to actually ask your real perspective on something. Could it be that that needs to happen earlier? Could it be that that needs to happen for men particularly? Um, but even, even women, but all of us as a collective, that needs to happen at around maybe, say, 11 to 14 years of age maybe even 10 to 14 years of age, is a bit of a range there, right? Where we begin to find or establish the foundations for the next version of ourselves and that that rites of passage very, very deliberately and in a distinct manner occurs then, particularly for boys, that then sets up the opportunity for them to be able to deal with the range of shadows that we have access to, mm. whether it's the disgust or the shame or what we perceive others to think, oh, they're not going to like that about me, so I will contort myself to fit in and to establish a deeper sense of worthiness and awareness of self. And that if that were to happen earlier in a supportive environment, that also includes deep, visceral, cognitive, emotional, spiritual challenge, that then we would be able to be more we have these attributes that we would consider uh, valuable in society, such as feeling that sense of you are safe. So I come into your presence, I feel safe. You feel grounded. You feel like you carry a deeper awareness of self. I can trust you. 
and that that is established at an earlier age, not yeah. to deny the childlike presence of a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, to still have that. And on a side note, I, I saw something uh, today, I think I may have even shared it on my stories. It said, you know, we, we, we all, we're looking for someone to grow old with, but what we're really looking for is someone that we can still be childlike with mm -hmm. as we age. Yeah. And I thought, fuck, that is, that is cool. That is so deeply true and resonant. But the paradox, in order to be that, you must have such a deep connection to all parts of you, including the parts that you don't like, that you're disgusted by, that you're shameful with, including the parts that you're not owning within your greatness, that you're not owning within yourself, to be able to get to that point where you can relax and be childlike because now you're not contorting yourself to be someone you think someone needs you to be. You can just be you. You can engage in playfulness. Yeah. And if you're in playfulness, you're in curiosity. Yeah. And if you're in curiosity, you're open. Yeah. And if you're open, you're open to transformation. You're growing and you're expanding. Yeah. You're not in a restricted sympathetic nervous system response where everything is a threat. You're not hypervigilant. You're not in fight or flight, nor adrenaline or adrenaline. You're literally in curiosity and you feel safe in that. And the way through that is to deal with all that shit that particularly in the complexity of our culture, yeah. a few thousand years ago, different, different set of issues, right? But the complexity and the layers of the emotional pain that we work with in this cluttered culture, right. very different. And if we were able to set some very strong foundations at, a, at an earlier age, would that shift and change fundamentally the, tra the trajectory of our collective evolution yeah. as a society? The thing that comes up for me there, and um, I've really been um, chewing on this the last couple of weeks, is uh, there's a eco-psychologist named Bill Plotkin. Are you familiar with? Familiar with him, yeah. Uh, and he has a developmental model that uh, I resonate with more than any other psychological developmental model that I've found. And he essentially has eight stages, but there's two stages for childhood, two stages for adolescence, two stages for adulthood, and, stu and two stages for, for elderhood. And that um, one of the things that all classical, um, like Western psychology developmental systems lack is there is no uh, space for what developmental stage the individual has to meet in relationship to nature. And so one of the things that he talks about is each of the eight developmental stages, there's a primary task that needs to be fulfilled for both being in culture and being in nature. And that um, in a healthy culture, uh, you would be able to do what you're talking about between the ages of like probably about 12 and 20, depending on the complexity sure. of the culture and also depending on the inherent trauma that the culture might inflict on the individual mm. because the culture is so out of alignment with nature. And that uh, one of the things that is supposed to be met in his model at the first stage in absolute childhood is the open wonder of nature. Like just simply basking at the incomprehensible beauty and organization and coherence of life itself. Yes. And that's something that most of us, even in our thirties and forties don't even have. And we that, lack that reverence. And that that's a fundamental piece of 
someone between the ages of like birth and five in like a healthy culture. But that um, the first four stages of his model are essentially um, cultivating that connection with nature while simultaneously finding an adaptive place in the community. Um, because if you don't do that, you die. You know, that like one of our deepest, most inherent biological desires put in us by evolution is adapt to the tribe or be exiled and die. And that that's a core, core impulse. It's evolutionary, yeah. Right. And that um, it seems to be that, uh, especially in the complexity of our culture and our complete disassociation from nature, therefore our dependency on culture, um, the type of initiation transition that you are talking about, I don't even know if it's possible that early in, in our current state of affairs. And that um, not necessarily the earlier, the better, but the moment the organism is ready, the sooner, the better. And one of the things that I'm feeling into is the type of people that would facilitate uh, an adolescent being able to go through that type of experience is what Plotkins would call a true adult. And a true adult is essentially someone who has gone through the yes. growth of ego where they have found their place in the social community that they care about, that they can express their soul gift authentically. They have a craft for expressing their soul gift and they're good enough at that craft where they're actually of service. And yes. so they've like found a generative place. And that, that's the beginning of the second half of life. And in Plotkin's model, maybe 18% of us are even there. And that we are a culture that has primarily ran our governmental leaders, our corporate leaders, and our idols in, you know, quote unquote, the cultural space almost all of them are stuck at stage three, which is they're still trying to find how to authentically be interrelated in a community. And that because we lack true adults, um, the opportunity for creating that space for an adolescent to have the needs met that would be required for them to go through that initiation ritual um, is fundamentally lacking. But to your question, I do think that it would absolutely change the course of our culture if that were available. And in Plotkin's view, and I really resonate with this, is that in order to get to the point that you're articulating, which is there's enough true adults to even hold the space for the adolescents to move through that, we have to bring adolescents who have been developmentally stuck for maybe 40 years into true adulthood. And what's interesting is what he articulates is the thing that moves the adolescent to adulthood is what he calls the descent to soul. And that the descent into soul is, at least in our culture, our way of knowing that you're probably there is, are you weeping on a floor somewhere, surrendering completely yep. to the mystery and that you're going to allow it to dissolve your ego? And... um I can feel that you are a true adult and that might be something that you won't even uh, take credit for, or maybe you are at a place where you will take credit for that, but that um, we need 
the people who are able to, quote unquote, in his words, weave the cocoons, um, the more that we can bring the developmentally stunted 30 and 40 and 50 year olds into true adulthood through a descent into soul, we can then start to actually have the numbers required to begin to make it a cultural um, normity that, oh, are, are you at the point where you're ready to step into like trying to serve the world? Mm. Go find the adults. So intuitively, I very much resonate with this model and it will be something I will uh, explore a lot further in terms of uh, research and education for myself. I deeply resonate with what you're saying. It is, I'm in a place where I can own my adulthood and I've been through the gauntlet multiple times and the descent of soul multiple times to be able to own that. Um, And the reality, the other reality also lives in parallel to that, which is, and there's always space for growth. And I grow every day. I'm growing now in this conversation and I'm open to it because I, I want to, I choose to not be arrogant to think that I know it all because that has been my demise and failure <laughs> in so many areas of my life previously. Yeah. It is also why I do the work that I do and it is no surprise. The moment you, you, you said that around 40, 50, 60-year-olds, I was, I don't know if maybe notice, noticeably <laughs> smiling, but I was smiling internally for sure. It's because that is the deep work that we do with we meaning my wife and I, but me and people in this space yourself where I am initiating 50-year-old, yes. 60-year-old, 70-year-old yes. men, not just men. I work with women a great deal as well and couples, but into this way of being that quote-unquote should have been done when they were a lot younger. And so for me, this model is very powerful. The connection to nature piece it is fucking everything because it is what sustains our lives. And we are nature. We are. We are. This is, this is the unity that we are missing. Yeah. We are so separate from nature. Yes. So, and it's evident in the way that we extract resources. Amen. Produce, distribute resources. The way that we treat earth as this endless supply of you are here for me. This is not how it once was. No. And if we continue this path, surely we are doomed. I completely agree. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> we have to revere at a deeper level. For me, I communicate with earth as if it's a person. Same. I talk to her, sometimes him. I talk to earth. I express with earth as if it is a living, breathing organism. And I do my best to remind myself that earth is me and I am earth. I'll share something with you that's interesting on death and death and birth, right? So we are literally made of stars, of stardust. A star had to explode and die so to speak, for us to physically be here, the physical constitution of that. And the earth is made of that as well. We are so interconnected. We are so much alike, but we, we are so fearful of 
our differences or our physical aesthetic differences that we can't recognize how similar everything and all that is in this perception of reality actually is. Mm. And so we spend so much time fighting against what we think is dangerous or bad because it appears to be different. And we do this in very subtle unconscious ways and we do it in conscious ways. And I know some may be listening to this and thinking, well, you know, what you're asking for, what you're suggesting is some form of utopia. Is it? Or are we just fucking living in such a dystopian paradigm that we can't see our true nature? And that true nature is just a deeper connection to all that is. Because if I'm hurting someone else, I'm hurting myself. Yes. The abuser that is physically abusing someone is abusing themselves. Yep. But we miss that because we are in such rage. We're in such disharmony. We are so fucking fearful. Yep. So I've I have so many threads that exploded out of me as you were saying that, and I'm going to and I'm going to do my best to try to weave the most meaningful ones. But um, one of the things in Plotkin's model that I resonate with so much is that your descent into soul is to meet your soul, and your soul is what he calls a fundamentally ecological phenomena. What soul is, and that a soul is the intrinsic knowing of any organism, how it harmoniously fits into uh, what he calls the greater than earth community. Like it's the whole thing that's living. And that um, to find your soul purpose is fundamentally interwoven with regenerating and healing nature. And that one of the things to connect to that is um, something that I've really been chewing on for the last couple of weeks is that And there's a lot that has to be articulated to even begin to explain this, but I'll just give a brief overview. And if you're interested in going deeper, we can, but there's a lot of really smart people who are essentially looking at the way culture is unfolding and have really cogent um, hypotheses for if we do not radically change the way that we are operating, we are going to self-extinct ourselves within the next one to 200 years either through complete ecological collapse or the exponential growth of destructive technology. And that we have to create what they call game B. So that first thing is what they call game A. And that the metaphor that they use to explain how to play game B is how a body operates on a cellular level. Each cell is, able to live on its own if put in a petri dish like it it has the resources to survive alone but that when you put enough cells together this new type of communication begins to happen that they call coherence that gives rise to tissues that gives rise to organs that then gives rise to what they call an emergent process that is greater than the sum of the pieces and it's a conscious individual it's essentially a spiritual entity And that game A is what a cancer cell does. Fundamentally, what a a cancer, what creates a cancerous cell is its ability to communicate and to know that it's a part of a larger organism breaks down and it 
from a information standpoint, believes it's alone. And when it's alone, it enacts short-term game theory dynamics is what they call. And it's basically, I'm going to maximize my energy consumption to maximize my growth. And if that goes unchecked, it destroys the organism that it, that it depends on to be alive and it dies and everything else dies. But the thing that causes it is when the communication between the cells breaks down. And that um, one of the best examples of this is actually how our vision works. Um, it's called parallax, but an individual eye has no depth perception and no peripheral vision. But when two eyes come together and it's organized by a higher consciousness, which is the visual cortex, they actually, from working together and being distinctly different on their perspectives, they get depth perception and peripheral vision. And when one of their points break down, the other eye will try to fill in that. And that happens yes. effortlessly. Can you imagine if two eyes argued about which eye was right? You wouldn't be able to see. And so you can actually feel into game A is what happens when you get out of alignment with nature because nature inherently has this communicative property with itself called coherence. And we call that like ecological balance. And that- Homeostasis. Exactly. And that game A is cancer cell. Game B is coherent cell. And the fact that you even felt the uh, intuition that you would have to defend this type of logic to the average person because they would think it's impossible is a testament to how truly out of alignment we are with nature. Because like you can look at the trees outside, the way the tree lives is coherent. So my addition to that is this this is what just keeps coming up for me as you're speaking as i'm i'm hearing you express in this way is that unfortunately i don't even think our game we've replaced that game b with well we'll just leave the planet exactly and we'll yes. bring this state of consciousness and way of interacting with each other to another physical place. So we'll fuck this place up, fuck ourselves up, but we'll move. Now I'm not against being an, uh, an interplanetary species, but I'm not in support of you're in a relationship, that relationship doesn't go well. You behaved in a way that was not conducive to the health or longevity of that relationship. That was fundamentally exploitive to the point of killing the other person. Correct. And then you bring that same energy into the next relationship. Amen. That's what we're doing. And to feel into that idea even more for a moment, let's say it works. How many people can get on that ship? Less than 0.1% of the population. So the like there are some people who their best case scenario is let mother die, take 0.1% of her remaining children to another environment that we did not evolve with, that we don't even know. In their trauma as well, by the way. Right. Being uprooted from home. And that uh, we would bring game A with us there. And like the thing that just, it's it's 
it's it's almost like a ruthless optimism and really feeling into the uh, heaviness of the situation that we are in. Like one of the things that's interesting, and it's also like, I understand why 80% of the conscious population in Western culture is on some level choosing not to become a true adult because, because to, it's too painful. Be, this is what I have. So I've, I've just really connected to it for the last month where I have felt the call. Nature is going to teach me the things about psychology that books can't teach me for me to get to my next level, but to learn from nature, I'm having to, for the first time in my life, just begin to touch the sea of despair that a human that all of us are in disassociation from, from what we are doing to the earth. And you can cre- and you can bring up whatever statistics you want that you get from Steven Pinker about how this is actually the best culture has ever been, et cetera, et cetera. All of us know it. Peter Diamandis speaks to it. Right. Sure. All of us feel it. Every single one of us feels that there is something fundamentally sacrilegious to how we relate to nature and the heaviness that it seems to be more real than it's ever been that we are living in a time that if we do not radically change the way that we relate to each other and to the world, there will not be humans anymore. One of the really interesting things to feel into is the one fact that you can learn from looking at the history of civilization is that they all end. They all eventually crumble. Yet there's this feeling, this like mytho, this like mythic feeling of like, oh, but not us. Well, it's, like, it's a mytho, mythopoetic feeling to some degree. I mean, not from the mythopoetic era, but this this belief that, oh, we'll be fine. It's an arrogance as well. 100%. And I would say it's more arrogance an ego, and again, paradoxically, because we have not descended into our ego and we're playing in the realm of where our ego is in hyper-defense and hyper-protection. To your point around nature, I remember I was, I'm 39 now, so it must have been, I must have been 28, uh, 27, 28, 29, somewhere there, and I went um, into the New Zealand Alps and I was involved in my first mountaineering expedition. It was a course in mountaineering and we're asked to learn how to mountaineer, but to be in the mountains. And it was a small group, there was four of us. Uh, I was there for a couple of weeks and I left those mount- those mountains. We had to be airlifted out because the weather was coming in. So we, we, we were there for the amount of time, but we couldn't walk out the way we had planned. We'd walked part of the way, maybe half or something. And the, the chopper landed. And I could see the mountains where I was vast distance away, what felt to be a vast distance, and I just sat on the curb and wept. I wept for maybe 30 minutes. I just wept. I didn't want to leave. I didn't care about social media. I didn't care about anyone. I didn't care about myself. I just, I, I, I simultaneously didn't care about anything and cared about everything. I didn't want to leave. I just cried. I just sat there and I cried and I cried looking at those mountains. And we all need that. Yeah. And I mean that when I say it. I'm not trying to be, uh, I don't know, a sadist. Or I'm, not try- mm-hmm. I'm not trying to have anyone, you know, get extreme pleasure from pain or I just, 
really feel that we all need that level of connection. And if we know at a really deep level that this, and, 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 and I know our, our sense of reality and consciousness extends also beyond earth. However, if we cannot harmonize our immediate connection with this physical earth plane, we will struggle at great depths to go beyond that. Absolutely. And harmonize in any other way. And we all, I really feel we all need to experience that deep, deep, visceral, spiritual connection to this is my home. And I don't want to shit in my own bed and then sleep in it. Absolutely. Because that's what we're doing. There's a couple of things that arise. The first one is when you say, I feel like everyone needs that, but I don't want to be a sadist. The thing that comes up for me is what I'm connecting and what you're connecting to there is all of us. By the fact that we grew up in this culture, we have so much trauma in our bodies. So much. Simply by being in this culture and that you've done enough of this dance that you know the way that you clear trauma is you feel what you weren't capable of holding back when it originally happened. You relive it and your relationship changes. Not relive it, sorry, but you relate to it in a new way that you couldn't before that breaks the cycle of that way of relating to it so that you feel free to make a new decision. And with new decisions comes new neural chemistry, comes new behavior, new emotions, new way of relating. You lean in where you couldn't lean in before. You explore fear in a way that you couldn't explore it before. You say I love you in a way that you couldn't. You become more curious and open because now you're not hypervigilant. Absolutely. And that one of the things to connect to, I talked to a a Reichian base um, psychotherapist and Wilhelm Reich was essentially like Mm. the first Western to bring like the idea of somatics to psychology, even though that's something that indigenous people knew for fucking thousands of years. (laughs) Um, But that one of the things he articulated is people tend to not understand the nuances of what we are now calling complex trauma. So Mm. there's roughly three broad categories of trauma. There's PTSD or there's like shock trauma. And that's like a bomb goes off when you're in war and you completely freeze or you get sexually assaulted and you freeze. Call that acute trauma as well. Uh, And then there's this thing called complex trauma. And um, fundamentally it's when the trauma source was coming from the people that you are biologically wired to seek safety in because they're your caretakers. Like you are biologically wired to try to find safety in caretakers. It's a disorganization in the nervous system and the perception of reality. And the thing that he was getting to is what can add to that is so small that most of us don't even recognize it, but the way he described it is every time your nervous system had the genuine impulse to purge a specific emotion, because that's the intelligence of the body that every other animal inherently has. And you were met by a social web that inhibited that expression. It's like, you've just added a piece of mud to your well. And that most of us, uh, men, what he said specifically is men and Uh, weakness or crying or vulnerability and women and anger and expressing anger and things like that, that there's decades of that just drop of mud, drop of mud. Generational, collective, big time. And that 
there is something about, and I think about this all the time, especially when I'm on mushrooms, is that when you're in anything man-made, unless it's specifically made by an artist who is doing something incredible, everything is made to relate to the size of your body that, that implies to the ego that it's the most significant thing. Like if you actually feel into these microphones or this table or the door or these screens, it's all in proportion to the human body. And I think that amplifies the felt sense of importance of the ego. One of the absolutely beautiful things about nature is if you go stand in an ocean, it instantly, and I'm getting goosebumps now, it instantly begins to alchemize your true relationship to the greater thing. And then I think that there's this subconscious felt sense of the energetic disposition of nature. And it's that if we anthropomorphized it, it's a mother who's having a tantruming child and the child is demanding flesh from the mother to live. And the mother lets him take. And as he's taking says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And there's something about getting out of culture and just getting into the presence of that energy that almost without all the fucking jingles and things that we have to create in culture for someone to feel safe to purge, a mountain can be the elder. A forest can be the elder. And like for me, at least, like I'll just speak to my own experience. It's just in the last couple of weeks where I've allowed myself to really begin to relate to nature like this. And I can feel that on that developmental map of the eight stages, the ego relating to culture is like stage four, like he's fucking doing it. The ego relating to nature, I'm an infant. Like I'm starting out at the beginning and that I can feel that there's this inherent healing that can happen from being in nature that um it's a reckoning as well yeah it's not just a healing right it's a it's a reckoning of self it's a it's a recognition of this is who i truly am and it's okay that nature is bigger than me because nature has me and i am nature there's a, there's a number of different stories that come for me when come to me when i hear you right now and and one is i want to come back to that mud example you're familiar with dr peter levine i love it yeah and he in his story where he got hit by a car Mm. the medical personnel wanted to lock him up and keep him stiff but his body wanted to move and move that energy hormonally physiologically emotionally just wanted to move it And that's another example of how rigid and restricted we are in our society today. Another story that comes to me is this deep connection of you can take from me and I'm still going to love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And there's an implication there that we are far bigger than our egos and we are far bigger than our limitations. And there's a layering of, I trust you, that you will take and at some point you will realize that you must give and that you will learn to receive in an equitable way, in a way that is mutual and unifying. 
And nature has that inherent trust. She's not biased. He's not biased. Thou. Thou is not biased. No. And there's a deep visceral trust, but we keep taking and we keep taking and we keep taking. There is nothing more humbling for me than being in the vastness of nature mm-hmm. and being in the, in the myopic sense of being in nature as well. You know, there's an old adage of if you had your mother or your father hanging from an edge of a cliff and you had to let one go to save them, who would you save? And you can replace mother and father with anything. And I would say this, for me personally, and this is, there's, and I'll be honest, there's some shame in saying this as well. If I had all of humanity on, my, on one hand and earth on the other, and I had to let one go in order to save the other. For sure. I would not fucking think twice Same. of dropping humanity and saving Earth. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, there's some shame in saying that because I love people mm-hmm. and I love the people in my life, including, let's get fucking real for a moment. You're part of humanity. I'm going to have to drop you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to drop my wife. I'm going to get my brother, my niece that I haven't seen yet. I can't, this is fucking emotional because of the global circumstances at the moment. But nature's never let me down. Nature's always been there. Nature has always given me the gifts. And it it is, it is is a reconciliation within self that is very difficult, very, very difficult. Yep. Something huge. Uh, comes up for me when I hear that. And I think it's incredibly important and I haven't heard anyone talk about it. And I feel like I'm like, one of the things that I feel is kind of the like uh, beautiful weaving of my life story is I essentially spent 10 years studying and learning the words before ever having felt senses of a lot of beautiful things I've experienced in the last couple of years. And then I get to bring my uh, mythic and psychological lens to nature and that is going to reveal a bunch of interesting things. But the thing that you articulated there about if I'm holding humanity and earth, I'm letting go of humanity. One of the big things that I see is individuals who haven't done the egoic work to be able to hold intense, intense emotions. When they begin to connect to this grief that we're talking about, when you begin to connect to nature, there becomes an anti-human hate. And I see it in activism that is ecologically based and also in activism where the people who are the activists feel like they're protecting um, fundamentally what feels like an infant or a baby to their nervous system from the culture that is dominating it. And it turns into this like anti-human hate. And there's so many people that I know who are sweet, sweet souls. And that they're deeply interested in trying to help nature. And they are riddled with psychological quote unquote disorders, which is a whole thing that we can go down into about even the label of disorders. But Mm. there is something about connecting to the grief that culture is doing to nature that if you haven't done the internal work to hold actually makes you sick because the grief is so big. And I think that it's why true adults are so important and that it's 
one of the most important things to bring into the culture right now is that a true adult is synthesizing culture and nature in such a way where to honor your soul in this model is to connect to something intrinsically harmonious with nature. And then you create a craft, either writing, speaking, dance, paint, to bring that medicine of your specific soul to culture to show the adolescence that there's a different way of being in culture that is not anti-human. And one of the things that I'm connecting to is I have a lot of friends who are deeply passionate about living in a different way than they were shown by culture. But they're, um, it's almost this like adolescent wanting to go to Eden where they just want to go get their land. They want to bring all the people they love to their land. And they want to cultivate that land. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that though. Right. We are at a point now. And this is why I think that that game A and game B and the people talking about it are so fucking important. And I'm going to be talking about it a lot is that game A has gotten to a point of power where if you go find your beautiful piece of land and you create your beautiful community, be there won't be humans on the planet by the time your grandchildren have grandchildren. Yeah. And when I say will be taken, it'll be taken by actions, not necessarily people storming down your doors. And then that, that, that opens up another conversation around protection. A, friend, a dear friend of mine once said, he said, I hear you that you want to protect what you love. I hear you that you have a fierceness in you, that you, that you want to be a protective man. And when you are in that energy of protection, it's not wrong or right, it's just an energy of protection. But if you're constantly in that energy of protection, what is attached to that is fear. Fear of loss, fear of death, fear of whatever. And if you're in, con in a constant state of fear, then how is that impacting and influencing in all the subtle ways, the way you're showing up to the things that you're passionate about, that inspire you, that to the people protecting. in your life that you're protecting? And I, I've been sitting with that for a number of years. And I've been sitting with, can we, instead of being protectors, and there'll be times in our lives where we have to fiercely 100%. protect. And that's part of being the human experience. But can we sit in the energetic of stewardship, exactly. which is different? That energetic is different. That energetic is, I'm going to advocate this value set because I see something beyond the superficial. And I don't have to be in fear because I see and I can connect to the bigger picture. That analogy of humanity, earth, and I said, you know, there's some shame of I would be dropping humanity. It's not because I hate humans. It's not, I, I, I fucking love humanity. The work that I do involves, I work with humans at a, such a deep level day in and day out, whether it's an individual or a greater collective. Because I see our potential, I've experienced it in myself. I've come from a very disorganized, distorted place where I'm not anywhere near that which which I was. Mm -hmm. yeah, do I still get angry? Yes. Do I still experience shame? Do I still go back on my words? Am I still out of integrity in certain ways? Absolutely. Am I willing and wanting to learn from that? 100%. General, generalization now. Is the majority of where humanity is able and willing to learn and, and wanting to grow? I don't believe so. Am I attempting to position myself in a, in a better position than anyone else in a, in a place of superiority? No, 
not at all. But here's the ownership piece that you spoke about earlier. If we don't own our greatness, we'll dim our light. And if we dim our light, we're just going to be like everyone else, which is dimming their light. And we're not going to progress as a collective. So at some point, we have to say, I acknowledge myself for where I've, for, from where I've come from. I acknowledge where I want to go. I acknowledge the gifts that I have. And irrespective, I have to live those gifts. Doesn't matter if it, my intention isn't to hurt other people. It doesn't matter if it hurts others. Doesn't matter if people are triggered by it. Doesn't matter if people are abusive towards it. We have to be in that truth. And we have to be able to surpass and move through and be on the fear that holds us back from being in that truth. Otherwise, we're just going to get more stagnation. I, I don't, I can't, I can't live in that world, man. Yeah. I'm struggling now with uh, what yeah. I'm seeing in the world. Yeah. yeah. I, I legitimately don't know, brother, if I'm and I'm 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 an optimist and a realist. I think I'm not um an antagonist. I'm not I see the world through a negative lens. I'm I legitimately don't know if I'm going to see my family again in Australia and in Greece because of what's happening. Yeah. Maybe Greece, I think they've opened up a little bit, but in Australia, I, I it feels very chaotic. Now I'm also have been in enough chaos to know that the calm before the storm, but there's also a storm before the calm. It's cyclical. So I think we're in some element or expression of storm at the moment. Completely agree. And there will be a calm. Nothing is, is permanent. I'm just very interested to see the unfolding of all of that. And can I still live in my truth? There's a quote that I love and it's uh, through calamity comes creativity. And that's a thing to feel into. Uh, two things came up while I was listening to you. The first one is on stewardship. Uh, there is a documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. Have you seen it? I haven't. Uh, I think it actually might be the most poignant um, demonstration of what heals the individual and collective psyche through the metaphor of nature that I've ever seen anywhere. The biggest little farm. Yes. I've been watching that shit tonight. What, one of the things that happens is that um, you, you could almost imagine that a couple wants to get a farm and they want to bring it back to life. And they're coming from game A with the genuine curiosity of moving into game B. And they hire this expert who's this old, super, like just eccentric genius dude who is going to be their mentor for how to like bring this land back to life. And they don't quite understand his vision, but they believe him because of his accolades. And they begin to do the things that he tells them to do at the beginning. And he basically says, it's going to take seven years. And the fundamental thing is you have to bring the soil back to life. Mm. And so they begin to do all these things to bring back the soil. And at first it's all green and beautiful, but then like a huge wave of bugs come in. And the, the game A idea is you would get like pesticides or whatever to get rid of the bugs. And he's like, no, you should actually plant trees and that's gonna bring birds in about eight months and the birds will begin to pick on the bugs. And, and, and then a, a new wave of problems come in where there's some new type of thing because there's not too many birds. And he's yes. like, oh no, don't worry, bring in this type of animal now. 
And then that will regulate that and regulate that. And as these three things regulate, the growth of the soil is exploding even more. And it goes through these like seven years of what feels like a thing that needs to be protected from is actually an invitation. Oh, this is now the just right time to now add this ingredient. We're so short-sighted men. I think it is like the most clear articulation of how we could begin to do game B. And the tragedy or the invitation is the linchpin there was the willingness of the game A players to trust a mentor, to trust a true elder. And we have almost no motherfucking elders in this culture. And so it feels like, again, kind of coming back to that point, it feels like, and Plotkin's assertion is that the single most effective thing that we can do to save nature is to initiate as many adolescents who are ready to become true adults as possible. Because once someone gets to that true adult place, they're no longer being regulated by culture, you know, because the first half of life is you're essentially trying to adapt your ego to culture and it has to be done or you're going to die. But our culture is sick. But once you get to the point where you, your internal locus of direction is your soul, you're bringing in the nature or the spirit of nature back into culture and that will slowly revitalize it. And you will naturally become an elder because you're now aligned to soul. And that reminds me of, um, there's a man named Dr. Will Tegel. He's, he's a mentor to Kyle. Um, and Kyle did a podcast with him recently. And the podcast opened with Will Tegel explaining a dream. And Will Tegel is an eco-psychologist. So he's this type of person that thinks like nature is actually the thing. And he was saying that he was having this dream where he was looking at the earth and the earth was, you know, going through space at a, at a rapid speed. And at first it felt like a spaceship. But then he had this overwhelming connection and he's like 81 and he's in elderhood. And so his dreams came through very powerfully. And it's, he had this overwhelming transcendent feeling of, no, earth is an organism and it has a sacred guidance system. And that there's this felt sense that the sacred guidance system at this point in history is having to fundamentally change in order to continue. And that the way that that's experienced by humans now is for a couple thousand years, we've allowed, or nature has been graceful enough to be like, oh, you have your homes? I'll stay out here. But now because of the intensity of the storms that are happening and coronavirus, how he said it is, nature's coming into your house. Nature's no longer waiting outside. Like the, the intelligence of the spirit of nature is coming into your fucking homes because it has to, it has to make contact with you for, for the guidance system of earth to even have a chance. And it feels like there's almost this like collective mutual descent into soul that's being forced. But our culture has so many apparatuses to help people ignore the descent to soul and we call that basically like psychiatry, you know, and I don't want to paint a broad brush. There's a, a lot of psychiatrists who are incredible, but the default model to, do you feel out of alignment? I'll fix you. You're broken. Oh, it's not culture. I'll give you a thing that fundamentally numbs your felt experience of Avoids. being out of alignment. Nature is coming into our homes because we are nature. And 
nature is coming to us because we've been avoiding nature. Yeah. And we can't escape it. We're not separate. And so that dream is powerful. And nature is saying, hey, wake up to your potential, humanity. Wake up. Because if you can't wake up on your own, because I'm going to still love you as I'm giving to you, but if you can't, I'm just going to apply a little bit of pressure till maybe you can awaken to your gifts, to your potential. And you can awaken to deeper collaboration as opposed to extreme competition. Hey, humanity, nothing wrong with competition, but you're probably overusing it. You're probably being a little too protective of that that fragility that is you, that you think is you, or that part of you. And maybe we're just going to apply a little bit of pressure. And what happens under pressure? Expansion usually occurs. So if we can get out of that short-term gratification quick fix, it's unpleasant now, therefore I need to change it immediately, and we can ride that wave a little bit, the transcendence into adulthood has a greater capacity to occur because part of that is our ability to deal with challenge and to deal with a difficulty and not ignore it and move beyond the lesson or the growth or the expansion that comes with it. Yeah. Because it's inconvenient for us to experience the fear or the pain or the the turbulence. So nature's going to say, well, hey, a little bit of pressure is not going to hurt you. Can you trust me? I want to say we can. And I want to say it's going to be really difficult. What do you see as your vision for your life of service? Like, what do you feel into, um, where is your soul bringing you? And thinking a lot about this, bro. What does that look like and feel like? Yeah, and just what is alive for you there? I've really been thinking. I don't just say I've really been thinking about this. I've been sitting with my phone and looking at this device that is a connector, right? It connects me to the outside world. It connects me to my inner world. It connects me to um, impact and influence. It connects me to voice. It connects me to presence. And I've been thinking a lot about this because my standpoint, I share this with Kyle. I'll very briefly share it again, very briefly. When I was younger, I wanted to be the UN Secretary General when I was like six or seven years old. Wow. Because I was suffering at home and I would watch TV with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, who were beautiful human beings, are human, they've passed on now. Um, and we would watch National Geographic and they would just watch TV and I'd see all these kids in developing nations just suffering, no food, no water, just poverty. And I'm like, this can't, this, what, what is this? This is, well, why? Why are we living? I was very curious from a young age. Well, why are we living like this? Thought, well, if I can be the UN Secretary General, I had this idea that they were the, oh, for sure. the biggest and the best in the world, then I'd be able to help all these people, right? As I grew older, obviously, I realized that wasn't the case. And so... 
I look at the world and what's happening and I see and I feel injustice. I see the pieces on the chessboard moving in, in such a way that is not benefiting humanity from my perspective. There are many that agree with me. There are many that disagree. So have my perspective. And there's a big part of me that wants to use whatever platforms I have and my voice because I've been through a lot, man. I'm really good at tolerating pain and I'm really good at, you know, taking a hit on the chin and keep moving forward. I've been blessed in my life. I'm at a point where I can say it's a blessing that the hardships that I've experienced have been greatly beneficial for me and I can hold a lot of energy. I can hold a lot of space. I can hold a lot of trauma. It's what I do in the world. Give me 10,000 people in a room all going through trauma, I'll hold it. I can hold it and I can help them navigate through it. And, I, and part of me wants to be this voice, hey, guys, let's, let me shake this up because what the fuck are we doing here? And I've been thinking if I should take a pivot in how my voice is expressed in the world. And the conclusion that I've come to is that my voice is best expressed in the capacity that it is now. I've done a lot of internal, deliberate work around being a very safe space for people so that if someone is having a cathartic experience, if they're moving from A to B, if they're really hurting in their lives, I can help them feel safe enough that they feel safe enough to break the old paradigm and move forward. Part of that is clearing the clutter of the past. Part of that is helping them have a belief in themselves with the trauma work that I do with people to be a safe space because when the nervous system feels safe enough, it doesn't feel threatened. So it's not hypervigilant and doesn't retract. And when you ask that question, I feel the biggest impact I can make, broadest and deepest and most profound impact I can make is to continue to be in that gift. And yes, it doesn't mean I don't have a opinion or perspective on the geopolitical nature of what's happening in the world or the mm. socioeconomical nature of what's happening in the world, the cultural perspective and at a collective level. My university background, a lot of that is in that. So I, I do have opinions, perspectives and, and shades of seeing the world in that way. And my greatest gifts are being in the presence of people that want to shift and change and transform, but don't know how and don't feel safe enough to, and to be that person. So I was a very unsafe person for people because I was volatile and very angry and I was very much in my shadow and I was dishonest and dysregulated. And I'm really not that anymore. I work with so many women, Robert, so many women. It is such an honor. Like Christine and I have a program called Be the Queen where we essentially help women find love in their lives, like you know, attract a really and create a really healthy relationship. Beyond that, it's about dealing with all their stuff in their past that is sort of blocking them, right? And part of that is the collective and individual masculine wounding. I'm the only man in this container of often hundreds of women. That, I, I can't tell you what an honor that is, man. Again, like the tears, I've got myself to a place where women will share their deepest, darkest pains. You experience this, man, in, at Sedona. And they will trust me to hold that for them. I, I, can't, I can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. I'm not a savior. It's nothing like that. It's not this fucking savior complex that I have or the. It, it is a calling. 
and it is it, it is a series of events that have unfolded in my life and I've related to those events in a very specific way that have got me to this point where I can't turn my back on right. that 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 gift or that presence right. that I have in the world that I want to continue to build. Yeah. And so much credit goes to my wife as well for how she holds me through my pain in a non-judgmental way that gives me a greater capacity to do the same for others. So when you ask me what's my soul calling, it's that. I can't see it being right. anything else. Right. The, the thing that comes up for me there that I feel too, and I feel like this is the energy uh, underneath your answer is that for a long time, I have felt like one of the most capable people in my immediate community of having hard conversations, yet my soul never called me to politics. It never called me to the big stuff. I, I was called to the individual psyche and to be like a space holder and also almost like a detangler of other people's stories. And yes. that, that was how I genuinely served what the thing was. And that one of the things that's happening in our culture is that one of the power dynamics that happens in anyone who is advocating for what they see as the most important topic is that if you don't advocate the way that I advocate, you're against me and you don't agree with this and you're a shitty, like the worst type of person. Mm. And that I have felt that targeted at me either directly or indirectly. And yeah. the thing that I've always relaxed into is I know my experience more intimately than anyone else ever can. Yes, you do. And I can feel that my soul is saying, look here. And, and, and then I walk there. Look here. And then I walk yes. there. And that feels like that's the undercurrent of what I'm hearing is Very that like so. there's almost – like I feel I almost need to defend myself from a certain type of person because I'm not in the same arenas that they think are the most important arenas, but my soul is calling me to- and I'm, I'm just tired of doing that. Right. Don't think for a moment I'm not torn between being on that, in, in, in that bigger paradigm of collective impact and collective change. And I, I believe I can do both. And I am, in fact, on the path of doing both as well. And don't think for a moment I'm not torn with, oh, if I only had a million followers- or 10 million followers, or my platforms were bigger, I'd be able to make more change. I, I'm, I'm torn that and the ego around that, all of that. That still, that still impacts me and, and even sometimes plagues me when I'm into the descent of my soul and I'm fragile in my ego in those moments. And I keep coming back to, I love what you said, look here, walk. Look there, walk. Exactly. And the ego's that. not picking where you walk. And I think that I think that that's the hallmark of moving from adolescent to adult. In adolescence, trust. It's the ego that chooses and goes. And that that is okay and that that is a part of that it's developmental necessary. path. But an adult in this model, which we have very few of, is soul picks where you go next. And almost in the direction that it is actually good for the ego, the ego is afraid. But like, only you can discern for you is this is this oh look next is that ego or soul and the way that i imagine it is it's like my ego is this wolf that i've fed and gotten all big and strong and um soul is the huntress soul is the one that actually commands wolf but it's 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 more of a relationship because wolf has learned okay if i seek what she points to 
it's healthier for everybody. But when I choose, like I will go gorge and fucking, you know, like it's like the essence, like, mm. and um, I just want to say that I resonate with the courage, you know, to like in this time, in our cultural atmosphere, in the discourse between people, um, that that is a courageous act. And also one of the quotes that I see that I don't hear anyone arguing with is like the most revolutionary act that you can do is to be a good parent. And like the core of that idea is like the most revolutionary thing that you can do for the healing of our culture is to yes. produce aligned spiritual humans and that doing the individual work with the psyches specifically of women who give birth and who will be mothers is we are plant there's a great uh actually greek proverb and it's a uh, societies grow great when men plant trees whose shade they will never sit under yes you know and there's this hopi proverb and it's um does it grow corn like that that's like the fundamental question of like what are we doing here does it grow corn does it allow for the next generation to life. come in life generational life yeah and sustainability one the, one of the things to feel into is like you could go look for a moment at the most powerful activists in whatever direction and in, in whatever direction um is what they're doing growing corn and then connect to like are you learning to meditate so you can be loving and spacious when your four-year-old is having, you know, a fucking episode? Yeah. Does that grow corn? You know, and I think if you have that guiding light of does it grow corn, like that, that resonates with me. And we're talking about values, right? We're talking about what we think, you and I right now, are values worthy of imprinting on collectivist culture. I, I read once Matt Kahn say this, it blew my fucking mind and I love it. The ego is the soul in its infancy. Mm. It's one in the same. It doesn't take away from anything you just said now. It doesn't at all. It just means that in our infancy, adolescence, we're following the streamline of the ego. As we break through that, the ego flourishes, grows, expands. We relate to it very differently and the maturity of the ego develops into the soul, into that guiding light that we trust so deeply, that there isn't this shadow relationship with, that we unequivocally know this is me, this is the path, this is what I'm seeing, this is where I'm going. And it's almost like a, an evolved sense of stubbornness that we have that mm. doesn't come from fear or doesn't come from needing to be right or wanting to pressure someone else or oppress someone else, which is all shadow stuff, or control someone else or subjugate someone else or tell someone else, fuck you, you're wrong. But again, like the mother, like the earth, I will give to you and I'm still going to love you. I'm going to make this choice and it may be different to yours, but I'm still going to love you in your choices because I see beyond what is right here, right now, the tension, the friction, the fight, the disharmony, all of it. And I know that it's the storm before the calm. The thing that I resonate with so much is for ego to follow the light of soul, um, it 
can be described as stubborn. The word that comes up is almost like uh, ruthless faith, mm. you know, and it's, it's, it's this feeling. And I feel it all the time, not all the time, but often in my life where it's like, uh, I can be with friends or whatever and they choose a, and I can just feel no, you know, and Man, that's tough. It's to taken, do that, it's, it's taken a long time. Man, that is because I, I could never do that. And even now I have bouts where I may struggle with that because it's what we spoke about earlier about the identity piece, about I can't be in the out group because I will literally die. Death is here mm. at my doorstep. Mm. If I'm not in the in group and I'm alone and I'm isolated, I am dead. Yeah. And we fear death so much. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that come up there that I can recognize and it would be important to admit is that I've been blessed enough to have cultivated of in-group that that no doesn't mean you're exiled. Also, what is key is that it you have to start on faith, it seems, but once you cultivate this relationship with that force inside of you, you get to a point where you recognize there is no exile, that there is a thing inside of you that... Um, is living in a way that is separate, but also it's a cell in the body. It's, it's almost like you're the brain, but you can feel the heart. You're like, oh, I think I have to be with other brains. And I can be, but if I'm disconnected from heart, I, I die. And that, that, that's the real exile to be paying attention to. Like the interesting thing is that when the ego gets to the point in its development where it starts to hear the heartbeat of the soul. If it continues to exile that relationship to be in false in-group acceptance, it's the brain cutting itself off from the mm. heart. And, Separation. And that, that's fundamentally what the cancer cell does. You know, like if we go back to like game B's, focus is that coherence is like we are separate and complementary to produce a higher emergent thing your separateness or your differentness is fundamental to it working but that we have to work together and i can feel that um if we can connect more people to having faith in their soul we'll get more of that coherence and I truly feel the way to do that in the world that we live in is to allow ourselves to feel the full spectrum of life. And part of that is not being in avoidance of our shadows, of our fears, of our pain, of that separateness. And again, I've, I've used this term multiple times today. The paradox of that is that we must immerse ourselves in the feeling of, well, it doesn't get much more separate than this in order to realize that, wow, we're far more connected within and without than we think we are. The question that's arising for me is for people who are listening, who are resonating, and it's a fuck yes, uh, what is your intuition as the first uh, invitation to them as either a commitment or an action or an initiation potentially? But from your intuition... Um, for people who are resonating, who are like, I want to say yes, what, what comes through? 
say yes to what you've been saying no to. Whatever it is in your life that you've been saying no to and there's a pattern around that because there's a charge or a fear or a tension in your body or something in the pit of your stomach or your heart accelerates. You mentioned this earlier, leap of faith. Yeah, that's part of life. That's not the argument or the conversation for everything, but there are elements of life that require that. I need to trust this and I don't know cognitively the answer or where it's going, but I'm going to trust it. So I'm going to say yes to what I've been saying no to. And it can even be the opposite. If you struggle to say yes, say fucking no to what you've been saying yes to. Because often what you've been saying yes to is a product of your infantile uh, uh, perception of self, your immature adolescent perception of self. So you will continue to say yes because you want to make sure others see you in a particular way and you'll dishonor yourself every time. And the mud, the mud, the mud. So say no to the shit that you know you should be saying yes to. Sorry, say- No, but both. Yeah, both, yes, both. And, and, and so when you're saying that no, you're saying, you know what, I'm honoring myself now. Right. I'm not going to keep enduring this pain because I think I deserve it because I have an unworthy sense of myself. Because the moment we say no to something means we have to change. And we're scared of change right. because it's unfamiliar. It doesn't feel safe. Brain is on alert. Well, well, we, well, this is familiar. Let's just stay here. No. Say no. Say yes to what you need to say no to or what you've been saying no to. And say no to what you've been saying yes to that you know you need to say no to. I could not agree more. The... The thing that, so I'm a huge advocate for journaling and for me specifically, because, you know, I'm the byproduct of Western culture, I'm much more in my mind than in my body. And so I think meditation is actually a great thing for people who come from an Easter orientation as the primary tool, but that can be different for people. But I was hyper-intellectual. Journaling gave me a place to begin to be honest with myself. That's what it is, honestly. that once I, because the thing that I realized before I started journaling I didn't even have the inner awareness to recognize that I was lying to myself and everybody else. Like I, cause I'd never even given myself a space to actually be contemplative. Like, you know, this is when I was like maybe 23. Um, once I started journaling and I started to like relax into admitting to myself, my truths, it actually started to change my life. But the journal prompt that I tend to offer people that comes through and I don't know if you experienced this, but very almost 95% of the time, if I start a coaching call and they have a question and I differentiate between like Google questions and soul questions, like a Google question is, I don't even need to be here. You can actually do research and find an answer. But when people bring soul questions to a coaching call or a coaching experience, by the end of the call, 95% of the time, they realize through laughter, they knew the answer before the call started. And they were essentially seeking either permission or hoping I would talk them out of it. Or safety. And it feels safe enough Heard. to explore that. Heard. And that the question that tends to elicit that laughter at the end is, um, if, if you got still with your journal and you asked yourself, uh, what is the one thing that I know I am being asked to do that yes. I'm not? And just like sit for five seconds. And... It's, it's a tremendously beautiful and powerful um, piece of evidence about what you actually are, that there is some part of you that will answer the question that doesn't feel like you, that knows 
it knows. Yeah. And it takes seconds. And then the like path to your transformation is, can you say yes? Or can you do what that thing is asking? And the thing that I would offer to your part of the advice that I completely resonate with is, and say yes or no to the smallest place that you can actually start with. Micro. Because have to start accessible. It has to be accessible. Because like we said at the beginning, one of the ways that your protectors will sabotage you if you're not paying attention is you will only make grand promises to yourself that you can never keep. Therefore, you go back and you stay what you were. And it appears, and you're it, it, in one reality, it is sabotage. In another reality, and, and it can help to have this paradigm shift. It's not sabotage, it's pure protection. Well, I completely agree. And, and you said that as well. Because agree. you mentioned the word protector. And coming from that place allows us to see ourselves, what am I protecting myself from? What am I scared of? What parts of me need nourishing and nurturing? And to add another layer to the journaling, because I'm a proponent of journaling as well, is, and this can be a little more confrontational. So you're going to pick and choose as an individual on the path of learning about who you are and wanting to know yourself is sit in front of a mirror, stand in front of a mirror and ask yourself that question. What do I need to say no to right now? And just sit in gazing at yourself as those answers, those responses, those somatic responses, those bodily responses, and those intellectual, emotional responses start coming to you. If you want to go a step further, stand naked in front of the mirror and see yourself in all that you are and ask those questions. What do I need to say yes to? What do I need to say no to? Where am I dishonoring myself? What do I need to do more of? What do I need to do less of? Powerful questions often lead to a powerful life. And the quality of our questions lead to the quality of the lives that we live. Whether it's in a journal prompt or mirror work or coming to a brother and say, Man, I, you know, and I shared a dream with you earlier. I said, can I have your perspective on this dream? Because the moment I had that dream the other day, <laughs> I said to Christine, oh, Eric's going to fucking eat this up. <laughs> so, was, I, 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 I purposely was remembering my dream so I could go into the details of, of it with you. Thank you. And, and so you, if you have that access to you, and I'm speaking to the audience, of course, here, where you have trusted, respected, revered sources of guides in your life, share that with them. And of course, I'm a massive proponent of self-reliance. I think it's a key tenet in masculinity and healthy masculinity is being self-reliant, not at the cost of your tribe because we're relational beings, not at the cost of isolating yourself. Solitude and isolation are very different. And so the isolation piece is I'm in shame. I have to hide from the world. Solitude is I'm being very deliberate in exploring the chasms of my consciousness by being in my own individual space without any other humans there. Come back to nature. It's a good place to do it in nature because now you're connecting deeper. Now you're, the sense of self is, is expanding even more and more and more and more. This is kind of a... Uh, twist, but it's my favorite question to ask on this podcast. What was your favorite story or myth or movie as a child? Just the first one that arises. You ever seen the movie Willow? No, and it's, and it's perfect that I haven't because the next question is, this is my favorite question. 
So I'm going to invite you to tell me in the audience that story as if you were around a fire and you were just sharing a story. And this, the thing to really hone into is I'm not asking for memorization or regurgitation. If you take the spirit of that story and you're like, I got four or five minutes and I'm going to tell these people that I love. And the way I like to frame it is like, this is your child and he's or she is like 10 or 11. And they're like, will you please tell me a bedtime story? And this is a story that you want to tell. Will you please tell it to us from your heart mm. like you would tell it to your curious child? Mm. It's a story of a time where there was rupture and disconnection in all of society. And there was an evil queen that had deep, deep fear of her own existence and of her own greatness. And she was threatened by anything that would challenge that greatness. And there was a prophecy that there, was be, there would be a child born that would disrupt her queendom and her rule and her power and her sense of control. And she set on a mission to kill every newborn child within a time frame. And word got out that there was a baby that escaped. And because the mother was able to give birth in secrecy and she had to give this little baby away that she loved so deeply, this connection that she had to this human being that she birthed, she gave life to because she feared for her life. And she set the baby down the stream. And this baby survived and managed to survive for some time. And it arrived at a village. And these people were what the movie called um, dwarfs, essentially. And they were like, um, like in Lord of the Rings, you know, like hobbits. They were hobbits. And they found this baby. Now the elder and the magician archetype, the wizard of this tribe, knew what was happening, understood the prophecy, tapped into source. And the man or the children's, the man that found, his name is Willow, that found, his children found the little baby, he was tasked with the three or four strongest warriors of the tribe to deliver this baby to a certain person that would fulfill the lighter side of the prophecy, right? And Willow was just a farmer. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave his family. He was practicing to be a wizard. And what consistently got in his way was his head. He couldn't connect to his heart and feel and see and then just take that path, maybe his head and his ego. And the wizard said, said to him, trust yourself. Wizardry and power isn't here. It's here. And so they went on this journey with this baby and it was difficult. There were challenges. They were considered little people and therefore in the eyes of the rest of humanity or earth at that time, weak or not important, not valuable. And along their way, they came into many challenges, but they managed to still have this baby in their possession. But what happened was all those warriors that were so strong, they fled. They went back to the village because they were too scared and they were done. But Willow didn't, and he held himself in integrity. 
because he knew he had a mission. He had to trust, even though his family was back there and he was scared. He was a very fearful person. He also came across uh, a human warrior, like a big person warrior, Val Kilmer, who was stuck in a cage, who was an excellent swordsman, an excellent warrior, but had lost his way. And had lost his way in terms of his integrity, dishonest, disempowered himself. He fell and succumbed to human pleasures at the expense of his own dignity and at the expense of honor as a warrior in the warrior's code. But they ended up trusting each other. And slowly but surely, the mission became bigger than both of them. And they did what they had to do. And Val Kilmer stepped up as that warrior. And Willow stepped up into that magician, that sorcerer, that wizard. And they did what was right for humanity in terms of moving beyond their fears and saving this child, but also demolishing evil from the earth. And they had to go through their own rites of passage and transformation. They had to change who they were. Or rather, they didn't change who they were. They rediscovered who they've always been. That was met with great facade because they thought they had to be this type of person for whatever reason, whatever their fears were that overtook them. And they became a powerful team. And there's some love story that's in there as well with Val Kilmer and so forth. Actually, it's an interesting part because the love story is with the daughter of the the evil sorceress, if my memory serves me correctly. And that's also beautiful as well because now there's a prioritization of what is truly right. And I, I do that in abbreviated commas because right and wrong can be such an arbitrary thing, such a slippery slope. But there's also a knowing. There's a deep knowing in what is truly right and what is truly wrong. And at another level, there is no right and wrong. It's all fucking neutral. It's all just, oh, this is what it is. Even what's happening in the world now, the polarization, the division, this is right, that's wrong. Maybe, maybe not. And if we got back into the storytelling energy, what is the sentence before Happily Ever After? Or like, what is the last note of the song of that story? Courage in following our truth prevailed. So check this. Um, probably the favorite thing that I've discovered about the human psyche is that you can imagine that you're born with your soul's knowing. And as the ego starts to grow, it kind of gets in the way of that soul knowing, but it's, it's, it's always there somewhere. One of the ways that soul talks to ego is through uh, what catches our attention. And the story that most catches our attention when we're young, our ego is like, hey, it's your story. And so the invitation of this question that I love to give people is, um, can you feel, and this is not something that you have to answer. This is just something to kind of like mm -hmm. take home, but can you feel your myth? I can. In that myth. And I can actually speak to it. Because a lot of my story was I'm the underdog. 
and I related both to Willow and I can't remember Val Kilmer's name in that, but we'll call him Val Kilmer because that's who the actor was. <laughs> Willow and, and Val Kilmer. And I relate to them both being the underdogs and having to fight and fight and fight. And I've always, not always, for so much of my life, I have had to fight and I've worn that as a badge of honour. Well, I did this and not only did I do it, but I had to fight so hard and so much harder than everyone else. And life felt like a really big fight for me. And when I saw Willow and Val Kilmer overcome so much adversity within their own selves, I didn't have the language back then, but right. with their own self, within their own selves and outwardly as well, the, the, the army, the extent, I mean, she was just demolishing armies with her, with her magic, but also with her ruthless army herself. And just two people just randomly come together to then coordinate this attack on her. But beyond that, it was something that was just driving, driving, driving the truth. And I can really relate to that in my own myth. And a question that arises that, again, does not have to be answered. It can be something I can be sat with, but also if something comes up, for sure, is um, for your myth, what is the child that's being delivered that you are the custodian of and um, where is it to be delivered? You know, like for your myth, it feels like that's a poignant yeah, you know, place of meditation is what is the child and where's the place that it's being asked to be delivered? The child is my voice and the voice is this reality, the platform. The delivery is this reality, is this that we live in here. And you did it today. The last question and um, one of my favorite questions is, I mean, I guess it's my second favorite because I just asked you my first one, <laughs> is I invite you to imagine that you've fulfilled fully what you have been called here to fulfill. And you have a knowing that this is your last day. Let's say you're 80 or 90. Or 160. Get them. Uh, <laughs> that it's your last day and that you know that you're going to pass peacefully in your sleep that night. What would that ideal last day look like and feel like? And who would you have there with you? I feel about this a lot, man. You know, I, I am. Uh, I have access to a range of my emotions, whether they're tears, sadness, grief, anger, jealousy, whatever it is, right? And there is something that brings me into a place of bliss when I think about that. And the first part of that response is I would be high up in a mountain somewhere or I would be in the ocean and I would be surrounded by all those that I love and care for, but nature is where I would be. I, 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 I can't not be in nature, in the ocean or high up in a mountain with that, that, cool, that cool breeze just making contact with my skin and, and all being immersed in that what appears to be an infinite body of water. 
And as I take my last breath, I, I take that last breath with those that have impacted me and that I have impacted. And whether that's an actual sense of those physical beings being there mm. or whether it's here in the heart, in the, in, the, in the internal sense of being, having that vision is in nature with that level of love, that cosmic, infinite, earthly love just engulfing all that I am. And if you could leave a note on a piece of paper before you go to bed to your grandchildren, what would you write? The word is willingness, and the constructed sentence is be willing to traverse the depths and breadth of all that which you are. And the giggling trickster in me is uh, bringing up, uh, what's the name of your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Well, no, oh, the, the one that you shared. The one I shared, Willow. Willow. Yeah. Willing. That that was the first word that came through. <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> Brother, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for saying yes to bringing forth that child. And I see you doing it. And then it's an honor to share that with you. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much for having me.